Amen. Well, at this time, I'm going to have Pastor Humber come to the platform, and I am so appreciative of this man, his love for the Word of God, his love for young people. It's evident in the way that he lives his life. I'm thankful for his stand for so many years now, 29 years. He's been pastoring 43 years. He's been at one place there at Sauk Trail Baptist Temple in Illinois, and I've heard him preach uh, on many occasions, and I'm thankful even for the investment in my life and for the encouragement that he always is. And uh, so let's stand at this time and welcome Pastor at this time. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 16. We'll stand in a moment for the reading of God's Word. Glad to, oh, you're already standing. Well, that's good. You need the exercise, and I do too, so we'll just all stand together. I've lived in a girl's dormitory my whole life. I had a mother. I had two sisters. They weren't very good looking. Whoa, a sensitive crowd we have. Don't worry. They know it. They got mirrors in the house. But I, I had a mother. I had two sisters. I married me a woman wife. I married me a woman wife. I'm only saying that because your generation is struggling on which way to go. Hey, I can't help it. It's your generation, not mine. And so you may look at us as old fogies and don't know what's going on. At least we know what to marry. I got me a woman wife, and I'm so glad I did. I, I went on a preacher's retreat. And I shared a room with seven other godly men. And when I got home, I got on my hands and knees. I'm not making this up. I got on my hands and knees, and I told my wife, Lori, I don't know what a woman sees in a man, but I'm so glad I married me a woman wife. You smell better. You sound better. You feel better. Hallelujah. I don't like those guys. I got me a woman wife. And then we had... Five daughters born in five years. Four weddings in 19 months. And so for me to get the opportunity to come and speak, <laughs> I wouldn't pass this up for anything. Come on, the married men in this room understand what I'm talking about. A yawn is nature's way of letting a married man open his mouth. And so for me... <laughs> For me to have the chance to come and speak, man, I'll fly anywhere to get a chance to speak. Hallelujah. And so I'm thrilled. I'm just teasing. You say, would you say that if my wife were here? In fact, she just told me last night. She said, Bruce, you're not going to tell that stupid joke about never getting a chance. I said, listen to me, Lori. I'm the head of our house. I'm the man of God. And if I want your opinion, I'll ask for it. And then out loud I said, <laughs> so I just had to get all that off my chest so we could get into the word, hallelujah. How many found Luke? You found Luke? Found chapter 16? All right, very good. I'm going to read the conclusion of the parable of the unjust 
steward. Several years ago, I was a youth director. In fact, it was more than several years ago. It was quite a few years ago. It was back in another dispensation. <laughs> back in the dark ages. When nobody had any fun. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have internet. We didn't have Game Boys. I was a youth director and... <laughs> I caught several of our guys outside the cabin involved in sinful activities. When they heard me coming, they quickly discarded the evidence of their sin. As I approached them, I noticed a small red glow on the ground. When I got closer to them, I, I asked them, have you guys been smoking? No, man, honest. And the opening of his mouth smelt like Marlboro country. He offered me a stick of gum and then he took three. <laughs> Are you sure you haven't been smoking? I'm telling you, man, honest. Well, the next night I couldn't find those boys again after hours, you know, in the dark. They always woke up after dark. They slept during morning devotions. They slept during chapel. They slept during testimony time, but at sunset, they were all eyes. I always wondered why they loved darkness rather than light. But the next night, while everyone else was sleeping, I, I heard noises outside. So I proceeded to go outside and look for those fleet-footed beasts. And I went back to the room because I could not find them. And when I came into the room, I heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. The sound you would hear of someone breathing extremely heavily after running a hundred yard dash. I followed the sound to a, a top bunk and I asked the young man if he would get down out of his bunk and there was no response. So I shook him a little bit and I said, would you please get down out of your bunk? Still no response. So I proceeded to help him down out of his bunk. And with my face as close to his as I possibly could get, I asked him, were you outside? He said, no, ma'am. Honest. I said, seriously? He said, honest. Honest to God. Wow, that's quite a statement. Honest to God? The message I want to teach and preach this morning is certainly not going to be a profound message and it's certainly not going to be the revelation of any new truth. But I hope and pray if, if we're really desiring revival in 2018, which we've been praying for revival for years, for decades in America, but there's some things that are withholding revival. And today I would like to emphasize and re-emphasize and stir up again a, a forgotten virtue of truth. And that is, honesty is the best policy. Or could I say it reverently and in a holy hush? Honest to God. 
I want to commence reading in verse number 10. Jesus is speaking in this passage. He says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. I want to draw your attention, please, to 13 words in verse number 10. The second clause, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. I want to deliberately slow down my speech so that you catch this Bible principle. If there's ever a day in the church of the living God that we need to scrape off the layers of dishonesty and facades and images, it's today. Today we have developed a generation, not just yours, mine included, of Pharisaical Baptists. We know how to dot our I's and we know how to cross our T's and get an A in penmanship in doing so. And yet inside, so many believers today are bankrupt. They're empty inside. They have to put on a facade of happiness, but inside they're empty of the true joy of loving and living for Jesus Christ. Their whole emphasis is to please some man, some church, some group of people, and they themselves are crying out inside, I'm miserable. And I don't say that to condemn any in here, but rather to help you get set free. Because when you have Pharisees in the church of the living God, they're trapped. The worst teenagers that I had in my youth department were teenagers that were members of my church and went to a Christian school. Hands down. I'm not preaching against Christian school. I support it. My grandchildren are in Christian school. I'm for it. The danger in that is... The outside is emphasized so much to a code of rules that if we get that taken care of because it pleases our professor, our parents, our church, that's the extent of Christianity and the mindset for many young people. And before long, they have two lives going on. But because they're truly born again, they're miserable and they want help, but they can't ask for it. 
because it will ruin the reputation and the image of a good church, of a good family, and even a good God. And so today I want to emphasize to you what Jesus is saying in this text. He says, a man that is not honest in small matters is not honest in anything. Could I repeat that? If a man is not honest in little things that most people don't even observe, then it's a fact that regardless of what his image is or his appearance is, he is not governed by honesty in anything. And so this morning I want to teach and preach on this subject, honest to God. Let's pray. Father, I'm going to do the best I can to teach and preach your word. These are some of your choice servants being prepared to go to the front lines in the next couple of years. Oh God, these are our future missionaries and pastors, preachers, servants of our great God, involved in so many aspects of ministry. Help them today to see that it's liberating to be honest with you. And I pray if there's any soul here today without Christ, and you know and I know, Father, that is so possible and likely true, I pray they be saved today. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Jesus said, he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. He was simply teaching us that a man that is not honest in small matters is not honest in anything. And when I say dishonest, and when I refer to dishonesty in small matters, that it equals dishonesty in large matters, I want to clarify what your conclusion might be. Let me simply state to you what I don't mean. I do not mean that if a man is guilty of petty thefts, that he will certainly rob a bank. I do not mean that if a man or a woman indulges in lustful thoughts and fantasies, that he will certainly commit adultery. I do not mean that if a man covets and plays the lottery, that he will certainly steal and gamble and cheat. I don't mean that if a man tells half-truths, that he will certainly tell an outright lie. I don't mean that if a man or woman drinks a little socially, that he will certainly become a drunk. I don't mean that if, if a man is mean to his children, loses his temper, or if a woman is mean to her children and mean to her husband, that they will automatically and certainly beat their children. I do not mean that if a man defrauds the government, such as in our taxes, that he will certainly rob the U.S. Treasury. But I will say, a man that's guilty in these small sins is a great candidate to commit the big ones. 
What I do mean is exactly what I said and exactly what Jesus said, that if a man is not honest in small matters, then he's not honest in anything, regardless of the image or reputation he may have. Now, if it appears that a man is honest and has integrity, and that he is a man that you can trust, if he appears that way, but he's not honest in small matters, the truth of the matter is, He's governed by some other motive. There are people that appear in public to be honest men, men of integrity, women of integrity. But in reality, they're governed by the fear of disgrace. Some would not pay back personal loans. They don't pay back favors. They break promises to their children. They don't keep their faith promise commitment. Because it's unnoticed. Nobody knows. It's, it's just part of life. That's just life. But a man's always going to make his car payment. A man's always going to make his mortgage payment. And really not because he's fearful of losing it. Because I think our generation understands there are people today that haven't paid their rent in months and years. And still living in the house because the laws protect them and you can't even evict them. But a man that appears to have integrity, he might be governed by a fear of disgrace so that people wouldn't see him lose his car, see him evicted out of his house. Some people will cuss under their breath, but not out loud. That's because they have a fear of disgrace. Some people will lust and even click on the internet to sites that they should not look at, thinking that they've got their tracks covered, but they wouldn't think for a moment of committing fornication or adultery. I'm thinking there are some people that appear to be honest and men of integrity, when in reality they're fearful of hurting their business or their livelihood. I hate to admit it to you publicly, but when I was in Bible college, I worked for a rental car agency. And we would clean up the cars when they came in from the rentals. And we'd wash up the cars, we'd change the oil, we'd do all the maintenance involved in keeping a vehicle running smoothly and, and make it clean in appearance, etc. Freshen it up, etc. Gas it up, get it ready for the next customer. Well, there are many hours that there were no cars to clean and to work on. And so we then would bring our car into the shop. We would wash our car. We'd wax our car and even gas up our own vehicles. And it was common practice with all the employees. We didn't think a thing of it. But we were stealing time. We were stealing wax. We were stealing gas. But because everybody did it and it was accepted and known, we didn't give it a thought. It was a few years later after I was in the ministry that God brought that memory back to my mind. And I was under deep conviction and promised the Lord the next time I was in Springfield that I would go to that rental car agency and make it right. I went back to the Queen City of the Ozarks and went to my former boss and where I worked and I... Of course, we engaged in common pleasantries and 
shared stories of what we were doing and what was taking place in his life and mine. And, and then I, that weight just laid heavy on me. I said, man, I got I to gotta talk to you about something serious. And I said, do you remember when I worked here? And of course, he commended me for my work behavior, et cetera, and, which made it even harder. He was raising my image, my reputation of being one of the best employees that he's ever had. That was my reputation. But I wasn't governed by honesty. And so I told him, I said, you know, I used your wax, I cleaned my car, I did it on company time, I even gassed up my car. The best of my ability, I've calculated the dollar amount that I wrongfully took from this rental car agency. And I brought you the money to pay for that. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Bruce, that's not necessary. The company has no way of taking that money and putting it into the books. But I will tell you this. I've been going to church the last several months and I just got saved. And this validates that Christianity is real to me. Our town is filled with Christian college kids. But you coming back and talking to me has encouraged me to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you with me? I'm saying some are governed by the fear of hurting their livelihood. Some are fear, fearful of the governmental law. I mean, some will lie to their family, but they won't lie in a court of law. Some will lose their temper habitually, but they're not going to commit murder. Some will rush their family and push them around and hurry up, snap their fingers, <clears throat> but you, you don't want to speed. You, you say, oh, but I do like to speed. No, you don't. You know what would help you not to speed? When you see those old red flashing lights coming up behind you or blue flashing lights coming up behind you. It's amazing the reflex that we have. We can drive down the highway. My wife will say, Bruce, there's a cop down there. She has an app, Waze. She says, there's a cop up here a quarter of a mile. Big deal. No problem. You know why? I've got my cruise set. Now, if I'm listening to some good gospel music and I'm filled with the Spirit, that could be a dangerous time. Because I'm not even thinking about speed limits at that point in time. I'm just saying, some of us are fearful of government. Some, are, some just love praise. You find $10 in church and you think God is rewarding you for tithing. And so you put it in your pocket and praise Jesus. But you find $1,000 bills in a bag and marked bills, you turn it in. Why? Because you want somebody to praise you, and hopefully there's a reward for that as well. You won't help others. You won't help a friend in schoolwork. But oh my, you will help the teacher out. No matter what he asks, you'll help him out. You know why? You're not governed by honesty, governed by praise. Some are governed by self-righteous. I'm trying to get a point across that he that is unjust and least is unjust also in much. And this is the principle that Jesus is teaching. And I want to be sure that you understand what I'm talking about because now I'm going to preach. And you say, what's the difference? Teaching, you talk to people. Preaching, you yell at them. <laughs> and so now, and I know I'm speaking to a lot of millennials, I'm going to yell at you. So don't take offense, 
just feel sorry for an old man that gets passionate about the things of God, okay? But I want to drive this point home. If you're not honest in small matters, if you're not honest to God, you're going to have some problems in life. If you're not honest to God, you will be dishonest to yourself. Revelation 3.17, speaking to the lukewarm church, Jesus says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and I have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I will spew thee out. Let me ask you this morning, I, I'll, I'll preach fast too now. How many in here, honestly, would say, I'm on fire for Jesus? Now let me help you understand what that means, because it's more than an emotional feeling. That means you read your Bible every day. That means you witness every day. That means you have a genuine, legitimate prayer life every day. I mean, you attend church faithfully. You're involved in ministry. You are waiting on the Lord, meaning you're serving God with a conscious eye of seeing how else you can help the Lord out. Like a waitress in a, in a restaurant. She's busy, but she's got her eye on a customer. If she's a good waitress, she's waiting on them. The glass is half empty. She goes and fills it up before she's asked. That's a good waitress. And that's exactly what God means when he says, they that wait upon the Lord. That doesn't mean sitting on your couch watching TV. And so when I say you're on fire for the Lord, you are just constantly moving for the Lord. How many would say, preacher, I'm not boasting on myself. I give glory to God. And I'm thankful today to confess that he is everything and I'm still on fire or I just got on fire and I'm on fire for Jesus. Would you raise your hand? And if that's true in a Bible college, what do you think it's outside of these walls? When you're the cream of the crop, and I don't say that facetiously. How many would say, preacher, even though I'm in Bible college, preparing for ministry, I, I hate to admit it, but I got to tell you this morning, I'm cold. I'm going through the motions. I go to church. I'm doing my schoolwork. But inside, I'm, it's like, it, it's like I'm empty. I don't read my Bible every day unless it's a class assignment. I can't remember the last time God answered any prayers. I can't point to a miracle that God has done in my life that I asked and begged God for. The last person I've witnessed to, I, I don't remember. Waiting on the Lord, that is so far down my priority list. As much as I'm ashamed to admit it, I'll be honest this morning and confess, I'm cold. I'm cold as ice. Would you slip up your hand? What I counted was about 25. So none that I saw raised their hands that they're on fire. 25, ashamedly, not boasting in it, but admitted that they're cold today. Do you know where that puts the rest of us? And God says, I would rather you be hot or cold. But because thou art lukewarm, you make me sick. I remember my 
a close relative of mine, one day, I mean, hurt me deeply. He said, Bruce, you make me sick. Now, that doesn't sound like such a mean statement, but because of my love and respect for that relative, it crushed me and broke my heart. And the thought that God would look at me and say, Bruce, you make me sick is a sad thought. You know how you get lukewarm water? By mixing hot and cold. And that's why it makes God sick. Too many Christians today are taking the hot things of God and mixing it with the cold death of the world. And we have our churches today filled with carnal Christians or lukewarm Christians. If you're not honest to God, you're going to be dishonest to yourself. You're going to pat yourself on the back or build yourself up or prop yourself up that, well, I know I'm saved and everybody has bad days. Come on now. Let's get over that. Do you love God or not? Do you want to love God or not? For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Judges 16, 20, one of the saddest words in all the Old Testament. Samson wist not that the Lord was departed from him. James 1, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. We have so many today that they can quote scripture and do the work of God in the energy of the flesh, and they have fooled themselves to think they're in right standing with God. Galatians says the fruit, singular, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Listen, if any of these are lacking, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't need to pray for more love. I need to pray for more of the Holy Spirit in my life. Because when He fills me and controls me, all nine of these characteristics of His fruit will evidence themselves in my life. If you're not honest to God, you'll not only be dishonest to yourself, but you'll be dishonest to sin. If a man hated sin because it was sin, he would no more indulge in one sin than another sin. James 2.10 again says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. God is simply saying, he hates all sin. And sinners that like to have secret sins and pet sins, as long as they got them under control, that it doesn't hinder them also serving God. They feel like this is acceptable. This is just part of the battle. No, the battle is Fighting sin, conquering sin. When a man can excuse his sin or weakness, I love how the world calls it, our weaknesses, then he'll be dishonest with sin because he's not honest to God. We should hate all sin. If you hate this sin, say amen. I hate stealing. Well, that wasn't so resounding. Those of you who didn't say it, I hope somebody steals 
your girlfriend. I keep forgetting what generation I'm speaking to. A little oversensitive here. We should hate all sin. I hate fornication. I hate adultery. I hate homosexuality. I hate murder and abortion, which is the same. I hate pornography. I hate laziness. I hate tardiness. I hate gossip. You know, it's funny when I say that to some audiences, they think, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You hate tardiness? You're going to throw that in the same category? Well, James says, but, of all, but above all things. Did you catch that? But above all things. Those of you who study the book of James, you know what I'm talking about. James is like the Proverbs in the New Testament. Lots of principles, lots of tips on living the Christian life. But he says, now, above all things. Swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, lest you fall into condemnation. He's saying, if you say it, do it. If you say you'll be there at 10, don't be there at 10.05, be there at 5 till 10. Tardiness shows disrespect to others and their time. I had five baby girls. Did I mention that earlier? Every now and then I got to get that off my chest. Five kids, and we were never late to church because we always planned to leave and be there at 30 minutes early. That way if we were five minutes late, we were only 25 minutes early. If we ran 20 minutes late, which could happen, we were still early 10 minutes. You know why? Because I was showing respect to others and their time as well. I'm simply saying that if we're not honest to God, we'll be dishonest to sin. Thirdly, if we're not honest to God, we'll be dishonest to service. And this point here bugs me and hurts me and challenges me. Because my church sends thousands of dollars to missionaries. We're just a little itty-bitty church on the south side of the windy city of Chicago. We have about 300 people, and we give last year $345,000 up and above our ties to missionaries. We see souls saved almost every week. Well, then why is it so small? I don't know why it's so small. I do know that my community has changed, that now I'm a white church in a black neighborhood. 85% of the populace in my area is now black. And so white people drive around our village, and black people drive around our church. Now, we have probably 30% black in our church, and they say, Preacher, I love it in here. We don't see color. And I say, well, what don't you like about our church? Oh, I love your church, Pastor. No, I mean, what don't you like? I don't even like everything in my church. What don't you like? Oh, I love everything. Okay, what did you have to adjust to when you come to our church? Well, your music's a little slow. Our music? But I'm not here for the music. I'm here for the word. And you preach it clear and to the point. And you expect us to live it. That's why we're here. And so for us... As a church, people aren't just going to walk in. We have to go win them to us or win them to Jesus to get them to walk in those doors. But just like the tabernacle had no outward beauty, once they get inside, that's where the beauty's at. 
boy, they come in and they love that place. You know why? They see Jesus. And with our media in our area that accentuates division by race and color and all that nonsense, you get them in our church, they don't see color. They just see Jesus. How does a church get like that? Oh, I'd like to take credit, you know, because it's leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So that means I got a good church. That's because I'm a good pastor. And I'll go ahead and take all the credit. No. Everything rises and falls on listening. To whom you listen will dictate the direction your life will go. To whom your church listens will determine the destination it will arrive at. I can have a great church and I personally give nearly 45% of my income. I win souls to Jesus Christ. I preach the word of God. I teach a Sunday school class. Some others might be deacons and choir members, etc. And we boast on ourselves because we're serving on the Lord, but we don't think for a moment that, well, I missed my Bible reading today. I, I don't memorize scripture. Even though I know the Bible says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That, that scripture is not referring to a verse that I learned 50 years ago as a child walking in my faith as a new believer in Jesus Christ. Memorizing scripture and hiding it is a continuous process in our life. If I want to conquer sin. How about meditating and memorizing on God's word? How about fasting? How about prayer? How much quality time do you spend in prayer each day? I'm convinced today that the average church has members that listen and watch more television than they read their Bible. Am I exaggerating? Would you concur with that? That the average church today is filled with members that watch more television than read the Bible. Is that an exaggeration? I would, I would venture a guess that's considered norm. When I've spoke at youth camps and, and to young people, they look at me like I'm an alien from another planet. You mean you, you expect us not to watch TV? Are, are you saying TV is evil? No, I'm just saying if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be saturated by his word. You're not going to make it in the Christian life if you spend all the time that you have being taught and educated and motivated and energized by the entertainment of the world. It feeds the flesh. I didn't say it was all vile and wicked, but it feeds the flesh. You better feed the spirit. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if we're going to have Christians today that are not impotent, and weak and unable to conquer sin in their life, they must determine and deliberately of their own volition choose to spend time in the Word of God. And that will increase their faith. When I was in third grade, the most popular kid in our school was Mike Twitty. It's a good thing he was a strong, muscular kid. 
because with a last name like that, he might have got pushed around, Twitty. And I remember he was the most popular kid in our class. You know why? Because he just shared with us what he had. Well, what did he have? He had the measles. And he came to class, and before long, three-fourths of our class caught the measles. We loved Mike Twitty. We were out of school for a few days. Hallelujah. I'm just saying, if you're not sharing Jesus Christ, you're not winning souls to Jesus Christ, today it's acceptable in the church. Winning souls is just for a few in the church, the, the super soul winners. No, if you're going to be honest to God, ye shall be witnesses. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. If you're following Christ, you're going to be fishing for men. And if you're not fishing for men, good chance you're not following Christ. Are you listening? If we're not honest to God, we'll be dishonest in our service. You take a sponge and you dip it in a bucket of milk and you squeeze that sponge. What's going to come out? Milk. You wash it up and then you, you drop that sponge in a bucket of orange juice and you squeeze it. What's going to come out of that sponge? Orange juice. You know what that teaches us? That when the pressures of life squeeze you, what comes out reveals what's inside of you. And what is revealed is inside of you also reveals where you have immersed your life. Is it a possibility for someone to wrong you and you say, praise the Lord? Is it possible for someone to hurt you and you say, God loves you? Is it possible to be told that you have cancer or that you only have so many days to live and to be happy? People think they're not, they're not in the real world. They're a facade. No, it shows me that they have immersed their life in the Word of God. And when life squeezes them, out it comes. If we're not honest to God, we'll be dishonest. In our service. And then lastly, if we're not honest to God, we'll be dishonest with our own soul. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1 8. You've heard people say, I've sinned, but I've never sinned bad enough to go to hell. And that's making light of our sin. Good chance you may have a couple of students that are here that really aren't truly saved. And I don't like when preachers come and try to cast doubt on weak believers to try to get them re-saved. That's not my intent. But if you'll remember, Paul wrote to the church, not to the heathen, but to the church, and he said, examine yourselves and see whether you be of the faith. 13.5. And so to this eternal bound audience, God says, examine yourself. Not a quick, don't go back to a certain date that your mother told you you prayed a prayer. Examine yourself. Look at your walk of faith. Is there evidence that the Spirit of God indwells you? I have a preacher friend that's a great preacher. 
And he shared his testimony with me once. He was the youth director of his church, and he got under deep conviction of his own soul. And, and, but he was such a nice guy. I mean, he would keep going back. He hadn't, he hadn't done this. He hadn't done this. He hadn't done this. He hadn't done this. And, he had done, and I was saved, and I had done this, and I had done that. And I mean, this guy was blameless all the way back. But yet, he was convicted of the Holy Spirit of his lost condition and humiliated in his own church where he served as a youth director. He walked forward, realizing he was going to lose his job, have to move his wife and children, and start basically all over. And yet, he wanted to be honest to God. He came and trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. I only share that with you to say it doesn't make any difference if you're famous or not, if you're a preacher or not. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, and if God has not converted your soul, you need to get saved. Back in the early 1900s, before the public address system was invented, big championship game was going on between two teams, baseball. Bottom of the ninth, home team is behind by two runs. There's a runner on first base, and the batter was watching the pitcher. The count is now three and two. It couldn't have been more, more exciting than this. The fans were sitting on the edge of their seats. The pitch was made, and the batter hit the ball over the center fielder's head. The runner on first had already taken off on the pitch, was rounding second, coming around third, came into home safe. The batter went to second, went to third. The center fielder took the ball, threw it into the cutoff man. He wheeled without, even, without hesitation and threw the ball to the catcher at home plate. And the pit catcher caught the ball, and the man slid underneath his legs, touched home plate, and the umpire, safe! And the fans went crazy. And then after a few minutes, the umpire went out, into the pitcher's circle there on the field. And obviously that was a strange spectacle, so the crowd sort of began to stop cheering and, and quieted down, and finally a megaphone was brought out to the umpire, and he said, the runner is out because he did not touch first base. And I wonder how many people get involved in all kinds of bases of ministry. But when the judgment day comes, you'll hear the great God of heaven who loves you, who died for you, who beckons you today, will someday say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. If you're not honest to God, you'll be dishonest with your own soul. I ask you today, what small matters are you cheating on? What little things are you overlooking today? What are you hiding in your life? If we're going to have revival in 2018, we're going to have to have a good number of folks in this room that will come and pour it out on the altar 
and leave this room honest to God. And if you need to be saved today, oh, my friend, I could be your dad or even grandpa for some of you. Please, don't waste another day. Don't get thrown out because you didn't touch first base. Today's the day to be honest to God. Would you stand to your feet with your heads bowed and eyes closed? I'm going to ask the pianist to play some prayerful music. We're not going to sing. We're just going to take time to pray and let's just have an old-fashioned prayer meeting here at the altar today. We're not going to have revival until the people of God will humble themselves and be honest to God. If you need to get saved, you make your way to a professor or just come and catch my eye and I'll, I'll pray with you and, and show you, reaffirm with you what the scriptures say about salvation. Father, it's always a joy to preach your word. Father, I'm not worthy in and of myself to preach your word. But I thank you that you've saved me and called me, forgiven me of my sin. And help us, God, as your people, to be faithful in that which is least. And we will be faithful in that which is much. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You come as we sing.